Hello everybody and welcome to the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. Today I'm really pleased to be joined by Lauren Windle, who's an author, a presenter, a public speaker, uh, has written for many different publications ranging from The Sun, Marie Claire, The Huffington Post, Vogue magazine and lots of others. Um, it's great to, to be with you today, Lauren. Thanks for joining us and taking the time out. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm particularly excited because you've given me no indication of what we're going to talk about. I know, we're just sailing into the fog. That's which, when the fun know, happens, isn't it? I, know, I mean, I, I was going to say, I was really looking forward to talking with you today, which was true until I read that you brush your teeth with warm water. And I thought, what kind of person does that? Why don't you um. brush your teeth with warm water? <laughs> it's, we're recording this on a particularly cold day. Imagine what you would have felt this morning had you brushed your teeth with warm water. It's a hug in your mouth, a gift to yourself. Yeah, I mean, I have to say I'm judging it without trying it. Um, yeah, I've... and that's wrong. You wouldn't wash your dishes in cold water. Why wash your teeth in warm, in cold water, you know? You can tell you work in media industry with the catchphrases and slogans like that. Everyone's going to be trying that. If no, if people get nothing else from today's conversation, it will be something to do with brushing teeth and warm water. And anyway, thanks for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. That's enough for now. <laughs> Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Of course, you you uh, have a TED talk that's been viewed several hundred thousand times, which is amazing. And maybe that's how we can get into the actual conversation. Your TED oh, talk yeah, is about, nice. there we go. Your TED talk <laughs> is about your journey to recovery. Talk to us a bit about your life and uh, we'll edit out all of this so far. Um, your life and journey to faith and recovery and all that that means. Over to you. Yeah, gosh. Okay, so um, my life. Yeah, I mean, that is a big question. So I was raised going to church. Um, my mum took me to church and that was very important to her. I didn't love church. I found church very difficult. Didn't feel like the sort of welcoming environment that it should have, I think. And um, when I was 13, I was given the choice whether or not I stay or go. And I was like, great, I'm not going back because I was old enough to stay at home on my own. My mum felt I was old enough to make that decision for myself. So I opted out. And then I found like the world, as it were, that not that I hadn't already found it, but you know, sort of teenager in London, lots of drinking, smoking, out with your friends, lying to your parents about where you were, you know, all of the stuff that's really sort of standard for teenagers. Certainly it was for teen for like people in my circle. Um, and that meant that you could display quite problematic behavior, but you were hiding in plain sight because for me and my friendship group, it was totally normal to get drunk and then throw up or to, you know, just to do all of those things that actually I would consider now to be like, you know, not very fruitful, you know, but at the time, totally normal, go for it. Then I went to university and obviously, you know, if you want to drink in an alcoholic like way, um, university is the absolute dream because it's cheap, it's encouraged, socializing is based around drinking. There's very little that doesn't involve drinking and 50p shots and bar crawls and club nights, you know. So I carried on drinking in that way. I, I got into a relationship which was quite a destructive relationship. There was a lot of codependency. He was a very big drinker as well. Um, and things yeah things were really quite miserable at that time and I think maybe because I was young I didn't 
realize how miserable they were because I didn't know what was sort of what other options were available the level of misery everyone else was experiencing and I kind of just assumed that like I was this was the level to expect sometimes you're happy often when you're drunk and sometimes you're not often when you're hungover and that is the cycle of life um but we broke up and he broke up with me around my 22nd birthday and I then had just left university had just broken up with this person who I had absolutely made my whole life and I saw myself as his wife with his kids and our dogs and living like you know somewhere just outside of London um and all of that was gone and then I got a job in hospitality and I was an events manager for some venues in London which is quite a sort of work hard play hard environment and um there was a lot of drinking and then someone offered me some cocaine and it just like there was no reason I felt for me to say no to that I wanted to keep drinking in the way that I had I didn't want to stop drinking um so like I took it and actually cocaine facilitates drinking it means that you can drink more um without sort of blacking out or throwing up um so that was really exciting to me to have discovered it I um yeah I felt out of control with cocaine quite quickly I think it's very easy particularly in our culture when you're drinking a lot to deny that you have a problem because this is the classic one like yeah but Jeff drinks more than me and it's like yeah Jeff's probably an alcoholic to be honest like who are we comparing ourselves to you can always name someone who drinks more than you you can always come up with a reason like yeah but I I don't like wake up and put vodka on my cornflakes like actually that's not what problem drinking and and the term alcoholic is actually a little bit outdated but in in sort of like general media it, it tends to be the word that we use but these days in medical research and things it would be alcohol use disorder um and um, people who display signs of alcohol use disorder are not, you know, it, it's it, the bar is actually far closer to what we would consider like a fun time than a lot of people realize. But when it comes to cocaine, I think it's very hard to say like, oh, no, this is normal usage, you know, because you are now taking a class A drug that's very expensive, that, you know, completely you know, it's mind altering in a completely different way um, and is far less socially um, acceptable. So I spiraled with that quite quickly. And that I'd say catalyzed my destructive behavior. I think without cocaine, and I'm kind of grateful for it. And, and what a weird thing to say, but like without cocaine, I think I'd still be drinking now. I think I'd be drinking into my fifties before I actually accepted that alcohol was a problem in my life, even though it definitely was. Um, but I would have found it very hard to give up without a very serious reason. And cocaine came along and was that reason. Um, so I ended up, you know, with numbness in my fingers and toes. I got like this facial twitch. And all of this was just so I could be fabulous and glamorous and party with the big boys and, and you know, meet people who went to members clubs and, and anything I could possibly be impressed by was what I was trying to be a part of and and all of that kind of stuff and actually like it was just 
it was really miserable. And what started off as a, you know, theoretically fabulous night ended with me sitting at the table on my own in my kitchen, smoking cigarettes, drinking straight out of a bottle of wine and doing lines of cocaine and wondering where everyone went, you know, and it, it's really, really desperately miserable. Um, I didn't wash properly. Every now and again, I would like have a proper shower and clean myself and then put on moisturizer and put on clean clothes. And I'd be like, yes, that is, that's me. I have got myself together today. I'm, you know, really on track. And, and this is what it feels like to reclaim your life. And this is a line in the sand. And I probably did that like twice a year. That's how often I actually took that level of care of myself. Um, And yeah, and then I got nosebleeds and I wasn't opening my mail and I was letting down friends and I was not turning up to things after I said I would. I I like in the end just couldn't make breakfast or brunch plans because I just wouldn't show up because I'd still be drinking from the night before, you know. Um, And then I guess there are probably two defining moments in my story that made me make positive changes. And the first was I'd been out with some friends. One of them had moved to Paris um, because she was dating a guy who lived in France. And um, to celebrate her, like being back in London, we went to a French restaurant and she translated something on the menu for me that I couldn't read. And I was like, oh my goodness, that is so cool that she can speak French now. And then um, I went off and met my dealer and picked up two grams of cocaine. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to hit the town with these guys tonight. It's a Thursday night, you know, like we'll probably go for a drink and then head a, head to a club. But when I got back from picking up the the friends that I was having dinner with, with, with like, oh, it's 10.30, you know, tired. I think I'm going to head home because they're normal people, you know, and on a Thursday night, a 10.30 dinner finish, quite frankly, to me is obscene, you know, but then I was like, what, it's 10.30. We shouldn't be heading back till at least two o'clock. So I went home on my own, called an ex-boyfriend and we sat up together taking these two grams there's like as an addict once you've got two grams of cocaine in your hand it doesn't matter if the circumstances change you don't pocket them and go oh well that's for the weekend then you take them and I went home and I sat up and I did my last line just as my alarm went off to tell me to get up and go into work and I just called my boss and said I'm not coming in I'm high um and she I think she could see that that wasn't just, I mean, it was a reckless employee making awful decisions and, and being very unprofessional, but also she could see that I was unwell. So she said, okay, you know, you're fine. You're ill today. I'm going to call you, I get some sleep. I'm going to call you at the end of the day and we're going to talk about this. Um, but I think I knew I had gone too far that time and I called my sister and she's the prodigal who stuck around. And I said, like, can you come over after work? And she came over at sort of 5.30 or something. And, and I just said, like, I'm I'm taking cocaine and I don't know how to stop. Um, so she moved me out of my flat and moved me in with her. And she took me to church. And then on the Monday, she sent me in to work with a pre-typed resignation letter, told me to hand that in because it was so inbuilt in the culture of my work. And she felt that was really unhelpful. And then she said, well, what are you going to do now? And the last time I remember being happy or impressed before that absolute crash and burn was when my friend translated a French word on a menu. So I said, I'm moving to Paris, having never been to Paris. And I packed two suitcases um, and this is pre-Brexit. So you could rock up then without any visa or anything. Yeah. And I 
rocked up and I, I set up a life for myself in Paris and I was still drinking very heavily there, but I couldn't get access to drugs. I didn't have a drug dealer. I didn't speak the language. Then that started to change after about um, nine months or so. And I started dating someone who worked in a restaurant nearby and he would finish a shift at midnight and then come over and he would have drugs. And my friends who were there, they weren't drug takers. They they drank, sure, but in like quite a sensible French I like the taste of this, so I'll have a glass of it kind of a way, not in my like, whoa, binge drinking kind of way. Um, and they said, like, we can't sit with you while you continuously make these mistakes and you continuously cry about this and 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 you continuously sort of crash and burn. And you've made this step of moving here, but we can see that you're going straight back down that path. So we want you to go to a support group meeting um for cocaine addicts and I went like just to stop them going on at me I was like yeah sure fine if this is gonna buy me another two months where you're not gonna like tell me off then I will but I think I genuinely was in danger of losing them so I turned up at this meeting and I and it was a bilingual meeting, but I remember standing at the door and thinking like, okay, they, they're all speaking French. I'm just going to go. I'm not going to be able to do this. And then I was just about to walk down the stairs to leave. And then the lift, there was a lift and the lift doors open. And this woman came out and said something to me in French. And I was like, oh no, oh, I don't speak French. And she said in English, are you here for the meeting? And I said, oh, what? I was going to go to the meeting, but I think it's actually not for me. I think I think maybe they're speaking French and I'm probably in the wrong place. And she just like scooped up my arm, linked my arm in hers and said, OK, you can sit next to me. And sort of very gently walked me into the room and sat me next to her. And um, and there are a few things that day that were like undoubtedly God. And, and that was the first. And then I what I thought would be like excellent voyeurism, like a good story to tell at the pub that I've been to one of those meetings that you see in like American movies, like, hi, my name's Lauren and I'm an addict. Um, but actually like, I just cried the whole time when they were talking and there were a lot of women there who were around my age, maybe marginally older, they were in their twenties and they were about three months sober. So it was just out of of touching distance and um yeah and and I just cried and cried and then they said did I want to share anything at the end and I did and I just said like I just I, I just need help I can't keep doing this um and then they took me for lunch afterwards and I remember as I was walking to the lunch I thought like oh my goodness I hope that there's wine at this lunch spoiler alert there wasn't and um they were like they, I asked them, can I give up cocaine and still drink? And they did not like give me an inch because I would have taken it. They just said, no, I, we really don't believe that you'll be able to do this if you still drink. We think it is really helpful to stop all mind altering substances. Um, and one of the women completely unprompted turned to me and was like, do you know what? I moisturize every day now. And to me, that was God, because like, I just prized moisturizing so highly. That day when I washed and moisturized was like, that's the day that I could take on the world, that I've, you know, finally not a complete mess. And the idea of being that person every day, I was like, oh my goodness, I can have that, you know, like that is possible for me. Um, 
so I left and I called my sister and said look they want me to stop drinking and she was just like do it I think that would be the best thing you've ever done in your life and that was it I didn't have a I didn't have a last line of cocaine a big blowout a final night a you know last glass of wine or Bacardi breezer or I didn't drink Bacardi breezers but you know what I mean like I just didn't I just stopped and every day was like, okay, but what's going to be the moment when I drink again? And like this sort of white knuckling and I just lay on the sofa watching Disney films because at least I knew what the ending would be. So there'd be no horrible surprises. And I felt so vulnerable and so like, like anything could happen and I'd be bruised. Um, And I left my sofa literally only to go to one meeting a day because I decided I was going to do 90 meetings in 90 days, which is what they recommend for someone when they first come into sobriety to kind of immerse themselves in that world rather than the world of of their addiction and their their addictive behavior. Um, And yeah, and that I'd say is probably when my life started. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. For sobriety how long has it been now so that was on the 22nd of april 2014 so by the time this wow no no what coming up to nine no my math is brilliant wow thank you carol vorderman (laughs) (laughs) i can give you consonants and vowels as well if you want um Yes, no, but this year, this year, April will be nine. Yeah, so it's um, it's ticking That's along. Amazing, congratulations! Thank um, you. So, so let, let's pause there because I have I have lots of questions about this. Um, so help me to understand because what's the difference between being addicted to something and it being a disorder? Because you could, we're all in in some respects addicted to something we choose our substance but we're not i'm not sugar doesn't seem to ruin my life in the way that alcohol ruins people's lives and yet i would rarely go a day without having lots of sugar in my food yeah in various forms so i just I, you but you use the phrase about a, a disorder mm. help me to understand how how people can recognize because kind of linked to that i suppose is the is the great phrase you used about the cycle of life that seems to be the kind of yeah the student or this is, I, I would just say the kind of secular cycle of life if it's not alcohol, it's experience. We just mm. go from one to another and we think, okay, I just have to live with the hangover, particularly when you're in your early 20s or late teens. You think, I remember that very clearly, mm. thinking this is what life is. If people told me this is what I should do at uni, so this is what I'm doing, mm. and now this isn't actually that much fun, but I can't really acknowledge that because this is what we're supposed to do because mm. <laughs> that's the cycle of life. And, and they're kind of like getting trapped in this, this is what we do, to realising this is this this is disordered. And that mm. phrase disordered, I think, is quite interesting as well talk to me a bit about your reflections on some of that um so medically there's no there's no difference between like alcohol use disorder and alcohol addiction right but what we're kind of talking about here is in terms of of I think it's different when you're framing things in a spiritual sense um because in spiritual terms we talk about idolatry and I, you know, if idolatry were a scale from one to 10 um, and in a perfect world, everything would be at a one apart from God that would be at a 10, right? No one's got that balance bar Jesus, right? So what you can do is take those things in your life that that prompt a dopamine release, that are things that some in moderation are good, but that we can 
we can, you know, use in order to cheer ourselves up or console ourselves or to, you know, when we're lonely or tired or whatever, whatever. And some, and sometimes actually what we're talking about on those scale are things that really aren't good anyway. And it'd be, you know, a, a world where we just abstain from those things would actually be more healthy for us. So, you know, you could write a list of those things like, like sugar, like, um, alcohol like money like gambling for some people like like spending money and shopping like sex like pornography like any other you know um substance that people may be using and you can draw out that scale and you can mark where you're at with each of those things so for me for example I'm a 10 when it comes to alcohol which means it has to be an abstinence so um like substance for me whereas for people who are like a two you know like sure you know enjoy a glass of wine and and stuff like that that's you know that's legitimate and there's no reason for you to sort of go to abstinence and take it off the scale altogether whereas I'd argue something like pornography even if you feel you're in control of your sort of pornography use and it's just every now and again and blah 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 I'd say like from my opinion and a lot of research I'd say take that one off the scale altogether regardless of where you're at and and ha and be in an abstinence place with that um whereas money like I'm actually super healthy with money um, so I'd say I'm a, a two, may, maybe at times a three, something to prey on every now and again, definitely room for improvement, but I've, I've never been that that's never become an idol in my life. Right. So it's, it's knowing yourself and knowing where you're at with those things. And yes, you can be an eight with sugar or a nine with sugar. And it's unlikely like to cause behavioral problems for you or to put distance between you and your family and your connections your relationships which means you know it's 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 not such a big deal that you abstain from it even though you're an eight or a nine but actually like in terms of a spiritual sense if that's something that has a hold on you then that's still a very big deal like we, sh we are given freedom. Jesus died so that we can have freedom. And if, if you're genuinely, and I know that this may sound a bit silly, but if you're a slave to sugar, if you cannot go a day without eating it, and if after a meal, it's all you think about and blah, 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 whether you're overweight or diabetic or not, you know, whether you currently are experiencing physical symptoms from an overconsumption of sugar, actually, like, do you want that? Do you, you know, like... I think it's important that we embrace the freedom and the life to its fullest and handing over your freedom to anything like other than God in that sort of, you know, humble submission and, and, and because he's, he's the one that can be trusted with it. Whereas sugar, it can't be, you know, or alcohol can't be and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's kind of where I stand on it. So like, yeah. No, it's really helpful. And in some respects, it'd be useful to people almost take an itinerary of their lives when it comes to uh, high intensity dopamine releasing activities, yeah. whether it is those things or computer games or screen oh, addiction, yeah. phone yeah. usage, all yeah. of that. I think yeah. there's some, something really sensible that we could all do and take an itinerary of our lives. But what? so a couple of thoughts prompted from what you said is, um, so the Apostle Paul said, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not be subject to a yoke of slavery again, therefore. And it, there's in in 
kind of concepts of freedom, there's an understanding that it's not just freedom from addiction, it's freedom for something else. Mm. And so the, the, often what our society lacks is a clear understanding of what we've been set free for. Yeah. Like freedom isn't an end in itself. And, and almost then to come to what you said, that freedom is for intimate connection with another mm. and all of the things that you kind of you listed that were problematic about your alcohol usage is that it was destroying connection mm. with people mm. and actually why why perhaps we particularly as christians would take the approach we would to pornography to say there's there's no acceptable use for this because mm. it's always going to create uh, disconnection mm. it's always going to make it harder for you to relate to mm. the you know opposite sex or yeah. the the sex that you're fantasizing about and so there's there's problems there and and I again in your TED talk that I watched, you quoted someone where you said the opposite to addiction is not sobriety but connection. loving connection. Yeah, yeah, that's Joan Harry, um, who he wrote that in his book Chasing the Scream, but also actually has a TED talk which is vastly more popular than mine, where, where he says that. And I do, yeah, and I think he's a hundred percent right. I mean, like. I think if you're in a place where you have lost yourself to an addiction where you can practice abstinence, then abstinence and sobriety are very important in building up those connections. But it is, you know, I've worked now with addicts for like seven years of the nine-ish that I've been sober. And what I find, particularly in their backstory, in their origin story, like them at school and blah, 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 is that they didn't know who they were which is why you get such high rates of addiction in the LGBTQ plus community. Because if somebody is struggling with gender identity or is struggling with sexuality, feeling that, you know, like, oh, wh where have these feelings come from? Who, are, you know, who am I? Am I a gay person? Am I a straight person? Blah, blah, blah. Actually, um, a lack of identity really causes um, causes issues. Um, a lack of of sort of community of loving community um can cause a lot of issues as well and um and a lack of purpose so if somebody like doesn't know who they are what they're a part of and what they're about that's when we get problems and all three of those things are so perfectly satisfied in Christ in a way that I haven't seen in any other you know like and I I, I try very hard not to force my faith onto people who feel very resentful towards the church or who who don't who don't want to practice that sort of religion. But I'll, I'll always be very honest with them about what I've seen. And I do think you can find sobriety and good sobriety without being Christian, without loving Jesus. But I, I just I wouldn't have wanted to try. And I think that what I have is so enriched because I think those three things are satisfied in my life in him. And that's an ongoing journey. You know, you never feel completely, you know, you have to continuously build that connection with God. And this is where I think perhaps the, the this is something we interesting to come on to talk about is often people find sobriety um, mm. through a higher power. Mm. Um, that that helps them realize the, their own limitations and the need for another a, a divine power to help them. I think the research is, it suggests that you almost can't become free from addiction without 
realizing your powerlessness over the substance and your need for help from outside often spirit spirituality and addiction and recovery are very closely linked but Mm. what strikes me is is kind of interesting is that idols don't offer connection because they're not loving ultimately that we endow them with principles and powers um Mm. to help us but in christ the only god who is fully loving is able to meet that deep need for connection but my question for you is how did your life up until the point where you went to that group how were you what were you self-medicating against that kind of loss of connection that you were looking for in the substances in Mm. cocaine um i had always felt um what i can now identify as social anxiety but we're talking about 2005 say when I was at school and and drinking heavily so that language I wouldn't have known then um and I found alcohol to be an incredible solution to that problem um in that I was just it's not that it went it's not that I was suddenly not worried about what people thought of me and if I was welcome and um all of that kind of stuff but it's just that I didn't have to think about it because I was drunk you know quite frankly and distracted and that's what I wanted and even though that is the shortest of short-term solutions that actually just piles the problem on more heavily the following day it was a solution nonetheless and in my sort of short-term gains kind of mindset that would do because I didn't have a longer term solution that I I felt I could tap into Um, and I do think the language and the education around that has changed dramatically since I was 14 you know and there is far more conversation around that in schools and things and I hope that 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 is very helpful Um, so I'd say social anxiety just this Everything I did was to be popular. I was just so afraid of being on my own and being unpopular and being unliked and and, and what that would mean for me, you know? And it just meant that, it just meant that I didn't have to think about that anymore, that that wasn't rattling around in my brain, but very much my solution to that was alcohol. And then the cocaine facilitated the alcohol use. And I wouldn't have known that at the time either because I thought my problem was cocaine when really I think my primary addiction was alcohol and it was just exacerbated by the cocaine use. Mm. So, I mean, that's part, I guess the social anxiety thing is partly why so many, the, the teenage culture is to just get drunk because it kind of lowers that fear of what others think and I can just yeah. you know, let go of these kind of constant. And what's interesting is that, you know, those those internal safeguards or that shyness filter is actually there to help us. But society tells us, you've got to just let that go. You've just got to be free. Yeah. You've got to throw off all restraints and actually bypass and override many of your natural instincts mm. towards pulling back and reservation. And um, that's quite fascinating. I don't know if you, this is a segue, uh, but Louise Perry's book, um, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Have you read that or come across her? I've not, but I've come across her a lot. And it's a funny one because I feel like the world would tell me to dislike her and push against some of the stuff she's saying but she's blown my mind in some ways and there's some stuff she says about christianity despite the fact she's not christian 
as far as I know, obviously I, I don't see into people's hearts. Um, like that I'm just like, has completely reframed how I've thought about, about sex. Yeah, we're big fans of Louise Perry. But the reason I mentioned her in the first place was because she she talks in her book really about how um, a lot of the modern messaging towards women, particularly uh, with, with the kind of the popularity of the, the 50 shades of grey and stuff like that is, is that they should override their internal their kind of shyness and disgust sensibilities towards sexual practice and just push through and just be as promiscuous and as mm. free as men are in their expression of their sexuality mm. and actually her point is that instinct towards disgust or shyness or um what prudishness is the old-fashioned word for it that's actually valuable and should be listened to and, and I guess there's a, a long-winded, rounded mm. way of coming back to what you're mm. talking about with social anxiety, thinking that's there for a reason because there's a desire in you for proper connection and intimacy, but there's also a recognition this is hard fought for and how do we do this? And we think, well, if I can just bypass like putting the hours in and working through the awkwardness of trying to connect with another person and feel settled and accept myself. If I can bypass that with a substance, then that will set me free and release all of these inhibitions and fears that I have. And that in part, I guess, is what substance misuse does for people is it, it kind of dulls those senses. And actually those senses, her contention, my, my ramble, her contention is that those are valuable and we should listen to them. Yeah, I yeah, I think that we do have we have those instincts for a reason. And actually, um, you know, I it's a funny one, isn't it? Because I think part of that is just biological. God has inbuilt that for us. And then if you are a, a practicing Christian with that sort of ever-growing, hopefully, connection and relationship with God, hopefully you're tuned into the sort of what the what the Holy Spirit's telling you. And and um yeah, sometimes you feel a bit panicked, you feel a bit fight or flight, you feel a bit like just deep down, like this stirring, like, oh, why does this feel so wrong? And that's a reason, I mean, to get out of whatever that situation is. And whether that's get out for today and and reflect on it, and, and if you're still, you're like, okay, now I just freaked out, I'll do this tomorrow, then fine, you know, but actually sometimes, that's that's yeah you really regret pushing through that when in the cold light of day when you've had a bit more time to reflect on it and you kind of wish that you had listened to that instinct that gut feeling that holy spirit feeling depending on sort of you know where you're at mm. so i want to come on to talk about your your book on singleness but before we do that i just want to you're you're there in that recovery room in paris that first meeting and you you said you you wanted to go with a bit of a, a voy you went with a voyeuristic instinct. Let's get some good stories, but um, which is beautifully honest. But you found yourself crying, and that I mean, it's a, I, we can all kind of appreciate why you might do that. But just talk me through, like as you've reflected on that moment, what were the tears about and for, and what did you see in that room that brought out that emotion? Um, and how did that play a big part in your recovery? I had already used the word addict to describe myself probably a year or so before this moment. So it wasn't wild to me, you know, but I think I'd used it as like for impact. I don't think I truly believed it. I think I'd said it as in like, well, maybe I'm an addict, you know, in arguments and stuff like that. 
Um, but I think it was just this release. It was this, it was this moment of realization that the words that they were saying were so familiar to me, even though we'd never met, you know, and um, anyone who's been through something that has caused or is just sort of traumatic, you know, anyone who's had a, a, a very difficult diagnosis or, you know, has experienced grief and loss or, or addiction or, or any number of things, there is it's like a magic trick when you sit down with people who've experienced the same and they start talking, particularly when you haven't taken the time to do any sort of like introspection or journaling or therapy about it. And people who are just a couple of stages ahead where they have thought some of these things through, they have thought through their actions, they have thought through how they have hurt themselves and others and they speak from, from that posture. And you're like, I never would have thought to put those words to it, but but you, you know me, you've, you're me. Um, and that is, it's just so spectacular and it's freeing. And it's, you know, the thing about addiction is that it's in the dark and it, and you lie about it. And even if some people know some things, no one knows everything. And it's just like you, you, you live in a cage that you've built around yourself and you hate yourself for it. And you're, and you don't know if there's a way to break out. And then, and then you're sitting there and there are people there who, who know that who've lived that and who offer you hope. And it's like, you know, it's like someone released a valve, you know, and it was, um, it was incredibly transformational for mm. me. That's brilliant. I love the way you put that. Um, and actually, there's there's a lot of crossover to how and how someone might experience their first time at church, say, or any gathering like that. Yeah. If there's an honesty yeah. in the room in the way that um, Christian faith is being expressed, it should tap into those similar instincts in others that have arrived and thought, oh, you feel this too. And oh, I can let my guard down and someone hears me and knows me because I think you're right we we all rush around in these kind of just whirlwind of activity to mask a lot of the inner aching loneliness and sadness that we feel mm. but when you do meet mm. people you think and you use the phrase they were just uh, three months ahead of me and so they were within touching distance when you see somebody you think oh you're you're like me but like a, a better version of me the, the me I'd like to yeah. be then you start to believe I could do that too yeah. and and that's perhaps the, the danger in, in if we talk in Christian terms, where we put polished leaders on a stage or a platform, or people who've got their lives together, or people who are experts at religion and Christianity, because they're almost too far removed from the experience of someone coming from a, a post-Christian culture that has no understanding of faith. They enter a room and think, well, these guys mm. are so far ahead or so different from me, I can't ever be like that. And maybe that's uh, an interesting place to, to kind of move, uh, you avoided using the word segue, move towards um, a conversation <laughs> about marriage and singleness because the subtitle of your book is um, dating in a marriage obsessed church and, and so even just to kind of as we approach that as a as a subtitle and a subject and I'd love to get your thoughts on that but as people enter church if they are unmarried they approach a culture that they see as people who are obsessed with marriage and very different from them not like them and they think well i'm not like these people in fact my culture doesn't really revere that marriage in the way that this this subculture seems to do that it's creating further obstacles and hurdles between ourselves and uh, and people who are coming to faith for the first time um 
let's talk about your book. Yeah. And let's talk about what prompted you to to write it. Um, yeah, let's go with that. Well, I mean, so when did I pitch the book? I must have been 30, which is in society a sort of like milestone age when it comes to relationships, particularly women will will cite 30 as like, oh, I have to be married by the time I'm 30 or, or this is what I want, you know, and and you hear people say like, oh, I want to have this job or earn this much or blah, blah, blah. So I think I was probably feeling quite reflective about stages of life and and this expectation to be at certain stages of life. But also by then I'd been in the church for a good sort of four years, um, five maybe by then. Yeah, no, five. And, and I'd seen how people spoke about marriage and I'd seen what I felt was this disparity between how married people in the church were treated and how single people in the church were treated um and and it didn't seem very represented and there are some people who represent it very well and some people who do take the time to speak about it from the front um and and I and I know that that there are people for whom it is like a real passion um whether they're married or not. But on the whole, I think if you were to survey 200 single people who went to a variety of denominations of, of Christian church, they would say that they don't feel that the challenges and the, at times, pain and disappointment and disheartening um, that they feel around being single and dating are represented from the front of church. They've never had anyone preach on it. Um, so then I started looking around at like what's actually available and I found a lot of books geared towards women, a lot of books with women skipping through fields on the cover or, um, you know, books about, about you know, putting into God in the waiting and um, practicing perfect patience and praying for your husband. And I, I'm not criticizing the theological grounding of those. I think we should pull in to God when we're waiting for anything that we're praying for. And if you would like a husband, there's nothing wrong with praying for a husband, but I did not feel represented by these books. And the conversations I was having with my friends, both male and female in the church, you know, over coffee or, or you know, down at the pub after a service or something were like fun and funny. And oh my goodness, who said what? And you're on this dating app. And, and, and it was like, we kind of enjoyed the journey together, but then also were really honest about the pain of it like oh, I actually thought that was going to go somewhere and I'm I'm gutted and I'm going to take a little break and you know all of those kind of conversations but it was always and, and yes God is at the center of those conversations um but they weren't super like spiritual and holy it's just normal like lifestyle stuff and I I, I couldn't find it anywhere so I wrote it I tried to to sort of marry up the the hilarity of of outrageous first dates where people do some of the most ridiculous things with the disappointment of a breakup when you actually had sort of thought that that could end in marriage and um and many many other things in between as well as actually just taking time to recognize and celebrate being single because the whole point of of being single is not to get married to level up it's to enjoy whether it's for now or forever 
<clears throat> all of the perks that come with being single and feel supported in embracing the challenges. And that's what we talk to married people about all the time. Like, oh my gosh, you're so going to love this, 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 and this about being married. These things we find difficult, but here's a marriage course. Here's an older married couple. You know, here's a load of very helpful books on how other people have tackled that. It's like we forgot to celebrate the perks of being single. And to be honest, wishing it away is such a shame because like, you know, there'll be times when someone wished away their whole time being single, got married, had a couple of kids, cleaning up some sort of poo somewhere. And they're like, I love this and I love the stage I'm at and I love my family and I love my children, but I wish I'd appreciated the fact that I didn't have to clean up poo when I was single and I could just leave the house and my money was my own and it wasn't taken up by ballet classes and petrol to to drop kids at various different places and and you know having to heat every room in the house because you can't have a cold house when you've got kids or whatever it is you know like actually whilst there are so many things to be celebrated about marriage and, and starting a family um my goodness should we be enjoying the time before that responsibility <laughs> I'm just still enjoying your phrase. You find yourself cleaning up some poo, some sort of poo somewhere. <laughs> Presumably from one of your children. Oh, yeah, well, know. you know. Or a dog oh, or an animal or just some random person's poo that you find yourself cleaning <laughs> yeah. up. That's Maybe all. you didn't make like... it to the toilet in time because of all of your childcare <laughs> responsibilities. Um, yeah. No, in my mind, I was picturing a child. So. No, I know you were, but I enjoyed the phrase. Thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, um, the the clip that I heard from your book um, was hilarious and tra tragic and maybe sums up part of why you wrote the book, which was of a, a couple that that were going on a first date and they met at a tube station. Why don't you tell this story? Because I, I just thought that was shocking, terrifying, and yet also kind of symbolic of, of the church's attitude towards yeah. relationships. Yeah, so she, I've called them in the book Jack and Rose, if I remember correctly, because the date sunk like the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so Rose was waiting at the tube station and someone came over and said to her, oh, can I just talk to you about your Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ? And she was like, oh, do you know what? I already know him. Like, thank you so much. Um, and then they had sort of a polite conversation. And then Jack turned up for the date and walked over to Rose and was like, oh, hey, you know, shall we head off kind of thing? And this woman said to him, you know, can I introduce you to your Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ? And he said, oh, you know, I'm Christian already. Like, thank you so much. So nice to meet a fellow lover of Jesus they start to leave she insists on walking them through a prayer of salvation despite it being clear that they are already practicing Christians and then she prays over their date and their relationship and I remember having this conversation when I was chatting to it was Rose who told me the story and she was like genuinely worried she was about to pray for her womb <laughs> but she didn't and then and that was it and then they went off for this date like a bit shell-shocked because they literally had just that was their first yeah, date. they just agreed to grab a coffee and see if there was anything more than friendship in it and suddenly someone was blessing their like marriage and stuff and they were like well this is a lot isn't it and they never had a second date <laughs> but yeah I mean there's a lot of that there's a lot of like very well-meaning very caring 
people in the church will sidle up next to you and be like, oh, when's it your turn? And you're like, Doris, if I knew that, I would tell you, you know, and oh, you're getting yourself out there. Like, yes, I'm I'm genuinely like doing my best. And like, or I tell you the one that the men often get that that feels quite suffocating is like, well, why aren't you dating? Almost as if there's a war effort that the men should be holding <laughs> towards. <laughs> when actually there are a lot of factors that will determine whether or not you're in the right place to date. And maybe you are dating, but you don't want to tell, you know, Jean, who who's at the 1030. You know, you want to um sort of take some time and process that before you broadcast it um so yeah they can sort of feel that pressure and there are a lot of churches some of them deliberately and some of them subconsciously who just elevate married couples in a way they don't um single couple single people and um you know things like church planting I had a I had a friend I have a friend who's single woman and just feels that church planting is on her heart but she's never seen anyone who isn't married do it and what a shame that there could be a church out there that she's called to but she feels so reluctant to do it without a husband when actually I I think there's wisdom in not doing it as a solo person but why not a collection or two single people or friends or something you know and it's just not from her experience it's just not been modeled because people look for married couples to do things like that and they raise up and they invest in and mentor married couples and and propel them into those positions in a way they don't with single people i mean you think the apostle paul did a did a all right job didn't he planting churches with a single person yeah do you know who was a good single person jesus you know Like oh, we forget that, yeah. Yeah, like fully human, lived in the most best fulfilled human life. Did he take a wife? No, he didn't. So how important is that to to a fulfilled lived experience? Like, and and I I and I do often have to caveat what I say by saying like. A marriage is great and it's important and it should be celebrated and it should be marked, but it shouldn't be elevated over um, people who are single, whether that is for now or a deliberate decision to remain single in order, as you say, to invest that time in God. It's interesting, I mean, it's interesting you made that comment about church planting and church leadership as well, because I, I do think there's probably also a, a similar problem that we have when it comes to married couples and, you know, putting so much burden on marriages and married couples in mm. leadership. I think there's a there's a popular kind of king and queen model that happens accidentally sometimes in church. Like, well, he's mm. the pastor and that's his wife. And so she's the queen. And mm. so she's also I the call pastor. my pastor's wife the first lady. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. There is that. <laughs> Which, you know, for, for some women, that's entirely appropriate. They want that responsibility. They've got a gift of leadership. But in a lot of cases, you think, well, no, I'm married to someone who's, who's an elder in this church. That doesn't mean that I want to be, um, you know, I don't want my household to be the first family and to have all of that scrutiny that's pra- placed on me and my family and my children. And, you know, there's a degree of scrutiny that's always going to come with leadership because of the character requirements for Christian leadership. But equally, in doing that, we... 
we place unhealthy expectations on marriages and families. But as you rightly said, we overlook the gift of leadership in single men and single women because they're not in a couple and because we can't we can't make kings and queens out of them. And I, mm. I just find that's a fascinating kind of observation I I have when I look at when I look at churches and leadership. And um, but that, that's talking about leadership. So, it, so my, one of my questions is. Is it that the is it that the church is obsessed with marriage, or is it that our culture is obsessed with relationships? And what's your reflections on that, and the difference between the way our culture approaches romance and relationships, and then the, the kind of contrasts and good bits about the church or whatever? Gosh, um, I, I I mean I don't think our culture is obsessed with marriage. Um, we are obsessed with relationships, happy endings, love, and you can see that from you know the biggest um dating shows in the sort of you know in the world at the moment you know if you're if you don't get if you don't get proposed to in the love is blind pods you don't make it through to the next stages of the show if you decide that your relationship in married at first sight isn't isn't a goer then you're no longer on the show anymore if you don't couple up in love island you're no longer on the show anymore there's no model where healthy singleness is is celebrated and and you know those shows are deliberately there to make matches and and to entertain with with hilariously catty you know interactions between contestants and guests as it were so you know that's that's a model that they found works for them but it, it what is it telling us you know what is it telling us about about your worth versus your relationship status and I do think that that even if the end game in though in like love island say isn't necessarily marriage and for some couples they do get married and that's lovely um you know but just sort of to couple up effectively um whereas in the church almost always if you know if a couple is going to be together they are they're sort of end not end game that's such awful language but they're working towards marriage you know on the whole um i would say yeah, I would say that that's reflected. I would say that the world and the church share this kind of idea that single is unsuccessful, you know, single is left on the shelf, single is unchosen and undesirable. Um, and I think that that's a real shame and it's, it's somewhere where the church could really step out. Um, but I haven't seen that happen well um as things stand mm. or if there is a if there is a an elevation of singleness it's singleness as defiance and independence mm. from need yeah i don't need anything yeah. else i'm single like why would i want to be with someone else when i've i am yeah. enough in myself and actually as you rightly said that's that's not necessarily no. a healthy goal either they're supposed to be mm. intimacy connection because without that we're drawn back towards our earlier part of what mm. we we're saying about addictions where where there's a a starvation of connection love intimacy we'll f try to find mm. that somewhere else um in substances and that, and equally if, if we're not getting that in our marriage we'll still turn to our substances yeah. or pornography to satisfy yeah, that yeah, yeah. desire in us part of the challenge that we're we're very aware of i think in the in the western church in particular is because of our culture's obsession with mm. romantic love and sex 
and its elevation therefore of the, that's a human need to have mm. sex um and we as christians say oh no you that you can't do that unless you're married and therefore mm. you must get married and and actually the problem that the church is facing is we need to create robust intimate friendships to make singleness yeah. plausible and enjoyable and fulfilling yeah. and meaningful otherwise what right have we got to say to say our gay friends that mm. you shouldn't have sex um, because what we're denying them in their mm. eyes is intimacy because that's what our culture is t- talking to us about so how have let's just maybe talk about this how have you then managed to cultivate meaningful intimacy and connection outside yeah, of marriage yeah that is that's the issue isn't it because say i said now like okay i've actually decided that i won't be pursuing romantic <clears throat> I've actually decided now that I won't be pursuing romantic relationships. I'm going to commit to being single. And to me, that sounds like a sentence. It sounds like a sentence to loneliness, you know, when really, when we're doing it right, that's not what being single should look like. We need to design community, church community in such a way that someone can be single, but never alone and lonely. And, and that is something that we've, we've, just miss we hit and miss and actually I think our society and us in the church particularly we confuse entertaining and hospitality right so entertaining is inviting someone two weeks in advance and checking your diary and turning on some music and maybe making two courses you know there's a nice oh oh we've knocked up a pavlova you know even if you've just chucked some cream and berries on top of a shop-bought meringue you know but you you've you've done it and you, and you put the kettle on afterwards and and you know you take their coat when they arrive and oh no don't do that Jean you sit down I'll take the plates right that's entertaining Jean is yeah, getting quite yeah, a lot of Jean's, appearances uh, Jean's big in the church game um you know all of that kind of stuff and that's amazing and we should do that and it's so lovely to put on and put, make an effort for our friends and our family but that's entertaining hospitality is yeah sure um doors on the latch unless you live in like somewhere where you can't keep the door on the latch um you know head on in we had a pasta bake yesterday so it's leftovers chuck it in the microwave put your own dish in the dishwasher you know like oh i i'm just running a bath for the kids but after that we're gonna watch who wants to be a millionaire like join us kind of thing like everyone needs a home where they can just rock up where no one's tidied before they get there where they are not invited they're just a part of you know like the the invitation is just implicit and actually like um it will need to be explicit a number of times before that sinks in but the welcome should just be felt they should just be able to turn up and we're so focused on boundaries in our society now and in christian society that we've created barriers against real connection and you need those boundaries of the vast majority of people but if you have kids if you have a husband if you have a wife their job is to push your boundaries, you know, like they are not going to adhere to your one hour quiet time, Mm. you know, like you try and tell a four year old about your one hour quiet time, you know, and actually like, that's what single people miss out on. They only get true connection Mm. when it's in its rightful boundaried, invited place when someone's cleaned up before they get there. 
And I just think, no, that's not what family is. You know, you need one or two family homes where you've got a key, you know, and for me, that's my sister's house. And, mm. and, and it's, I guess, you know, there are people who don't have that biological relationship where, you know, you know, not everyone gets great families and stuff, but church families there to do that. And I have got church family couples who I could like, I remember one couple, this is before they had a child, but I'm sure it would still stand. I was around their house and I was exhausted. And I was messaging my friend and she was like, oh, I'm just going to leave the key under the mat. Like, just have a nap on my sofa before you do your thing this evening. Just go and have a nap. And I didn't even nap. I just watched New Girl and ate all the chocolate from their fridge. I mean, who keeps chocolate in the fridge anyway? They deserved it. But like, I, I needed that, you know, I, I just needed someone, I just need people to open their home in that way. Mm. And if you as a family unit aren't doing that for mm. someone, if there isn't someone who can treat your home like theirs, then maybe there should be. And if you as a single person don't have that dynamic where there's somewhere where you can just breathe and sink in and like, oh, I'll read the kids a story or, you know, like, oh, oh, don't worry about that. I'll chop these onions, you know, that kind of thing. Then actually like find it, develop it, express that that's a need for you because that's how you won't feel alone. Mm, that's really good. And I, I like your statement there. You've got to find it, develop it. Like there's an intentionality on both parts to find yeah. and develop this because i you know there was yeah. as married as a married married man with kids i'd be super keen for a lot of what you described but finding it mm -hmm. developing it actually requires effort and that, in the initiating part there's going to be a lot of like you said you've got to keep inviting until it becomes you've got to keep making it explicit until it becomes implicit um command of the english language lauren very good um, <laughs> it's very very good i really like what you said and i'm so so grateful for everything you've shared today it's just before we kind of wrap things up is there anything like i mean i could ask you lots more questions about your book and people should go out and buy your book and and actually i mean last year you spoke at new day and we're hoping we haven't asked you yet but we're hoping we can get you back at new day this year and um, we'd love to have you please <laughs> in fact while we're, while we're recording this will you come to new day in the summer I would love to come to okay, New Okay, great. Day there in we go. It's done, everybody. She has to come That's now. That's locked in. Okay. Oh my goodness. Having said that, I'm just going to check my diary because I think I've put I've put the dates to my favorite ones already in just in case oh, I was going to be invited. Wow. Have Is you made New it? Day in your favorite one? Let's find out. Yeah, it's August. It it's is. totally here. Great. I can see you. I can see you. You're yes, I have you marked down. So I would love that. Thank Excellent. You so so much. you've heard it here first. What Lauren Windle <laughs> is speaking at New Day in 2023. Probably the first confirmed speaker that's been announced this year, Lauren. Um, oh, if I don't get a formal email to invite me now, then no, I'm going to be really offended. This is your email. <laughs> this is your email um, until two weeks before the event. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> just as we draw things to a close for today, uh, mm. why don't you just share? Is there anything on your heart or in your mind that you kind of want to leave us with? Yeah, I think the final thing is, you know, we've covered particularly in the early half of this, some quite heavy, quite life affecting things for some people. Um, and I would just say, if you are in a position where you're struggling with an addiction, or you think you might be struggling with an addiction, um, it is so important that you reach out and ask for help from someone. I don't know anyone who has gotten to a place of freedom, completely in independence. It's I, you know, I only know people who 
have worked through that with the support of other people who know how they're feeling. And I think it's so powerful to ask for help. And um, on my website, I've got a load of resources under, like there's a little recovery page and there's loads of buttons you can click there for charities, anonymous fellowships, Christian support systems and things like that. And I think um, like maybe this is, maybe this is it. Maybe this is God. I think a lot of people when it comes to addiction pray and and expect the lightning bolt and expect that they're going to wake up and that's it they do not have an issue with food anymore they do not have an issue with alcohol anymore suddenly they're very balanced and they no longer want to watch pornography um when actually i think those stories happen um but i think what's far more likely is that god is providing you with the tools to put in the work to develop your character to develop your relationship with him and to work towards that freedom and maybe this is God saying like here's the tools go and find one of those charities speak to someone who you trust in your church you know reach out to leadership um you know contact someone who understands what you're feeling and where you've been and and share with them honestly and and start on that road and you'll never regret it your life is so valuable you know Jesus really did sacrifice everything so that you could have that freedom so walk in it claim in it claim it work towards it and develop that relationship with god so that you can feel that full freedom oh man preach it thank you so much lauren windle for your time today oh thank you for having me I hope you enjoyed today's episode and my conversation with Lauren Windle. I felt there was so much in there, so many things that she said that were really memorable and helpful reminders for us in the church, really inspiring. Just a reminder as well that more information about Lauren Windle, how you can connect with her, as well as some of her writing and her book is available in the description to today's episode. Well, once again, thanks so much for being with us. Stay well, keep pursuing Jesus with everything you've got. And I look forward to bringing you more conversations about the Christian life and leadership soon. God bless. Goodbye.